The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, if you want to turn to John chapter 19, is where we are. We've been going through the Gospel of John, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we are now in John 19, looking at the very death of Jesus Christ, the most important in event in his life. That is why he came. He came to die. And so that's why today's sermon I titled, Jesus Dies for Sinners. And we want to look at that in John chapter 19, starting at verse 25, going on down. We're also going to look at a couple passages in Matthew because events in Matthew happened at the same time when Jesus died. John doesn't give us that information. He gives us some new information. But we'll look at what Matthew, the other gospel writer, has to say of what happened at this time during Christ's death. Like I said, the title is Jesus Dies for Sinners. I think just about everybody in the world would agree that Jesus died. Even atheists, agnostics. They will concede, can't get around it. Jesus is a historical figure. There's too much data to deny it. And they would all agree that Jesus died. So everybody agrees with that. That's a universal truth. Jesus died. But then there's that last phrase there. Jesus died for sinners. Why did Jesus die? Not everybody agrees on that. But the biblical truth, the Christian doctrine, is that Jesus died for sinners. He died for a purpose. As a matter of fact, He died for the most important purpose in the world. He died for sinners. And even with the believing Christian community and among Christians who say they believe in the Bible, they don't even agree as to the meaning of what that phrase means when it says Jesus died for sinners. There's been dispute for 2,000 years among professing Christians as to what that means. And that's what I want to address today, not from my own opinion, but from Scripture itself and even from the words of Jesus Himself interpreting this very important truth or statement, Jesus died for sinners. We want to explain what that means. There's the fact of it, Jesus died for sinners. Now we need to understand what is the real meaning and the implications of that statement that not everybody agrees on. Jesus died for sinners. You might even be challenged with new information today. Uh, maybe you'll hear something you thought, no, I, I never knew that, or wow, I don't believe that, or how come I haven't heard of that before? Well, that, that wouldn't surprise me if you responded that way. But I think it's clear from Scripture. So we're going to look at two key passages, one in Matthew and one in John, really trying to explain the meaning of Jesus' death. What did He accomplish when He died on the cross? Because there's a disparity of different views. We go to the Bible to tell us what the true meaning is. So let's go ahead and look at it. Why did Jesus die? What it, and what does it mean when we say that Jesus dies or died for sinners and in our case dies for sinners in John 19? Uh, four great truths and implications from that statement that Jesus dies for sinners. There are many reasons why, or many implications of the fact that Jesus died for sinners, and I want to highlight four of the most important ones of why Jesus died for sinners and how that affects us and how we can be really blessed from these great truths. Uh, The first one is in John 19. We're picking up from last week. Last week we talked about Jesus was crucified. He hung on the cross for almost six hours, according to the four Gospels, from about nine in the morning till about three o'clock in the afternoon hanging on the cross, alive the entire time with nails in His hands and in His feet, bleeding a slow death. Bleeding to death. 
and he had been tortured. And during that six-hour period, there was this nonstop, incessant mockery from everybody that was watching, all the spectators. Mocking Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. And we continue the story now. Jesus is still hanging on the cross. And again, like I said, it will be up to almost a six-hour period where he's been hanging on the cross until 3 o'clock in the afternoon when they take him down from the cross. And we'll see that in the next coming weeks. But during this time, Jesus says different things while he's hanging on the cross. As far as we could tell from the four Gospels, Throughout that six-hour period, there was much silence on Jesus' part where there were at least seven statements that he made. Seven times he spoke from the cross. They're absolutely profound. We've investigated a couple of those, and now we're going to look at a couple more of seven, some of the seven things that Jesus said while on the cross because they all have implications for us. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. And there are four great truths that still apply to me because of my faith in Him. And if you're a Christian, you can say the same thing this morning. Let's go ahead and look at the first one. And that's, as Savior, Jesus assures provision. That's John 19. Hanging on the cross for who knows how long at this point. A couple of hours. Most of what he's hearing from the crowd is utter, blatant mockery. We've seen that throughout the entire process from the time that he got arrested the night before from his arrest and betrayal by Judas as he was taken away by the Roman soldiers as he stood before Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the high priest and Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Roman soldiers. Jesus has been in charge the entire time. He is in charge of his death. This is divinely orchestrated. Yet every human being involved is responsible for what they're doing. It's a great mystery. But Jesus is in charge. He came to die. So He's hanging on the cross. By the way, He's hanging on the cross on the most important day of the Jewish calendar. It was Passover. The greatest feast of the Jewish nation. Passover day. Do you know that while Jesus was hanging on the cross from 9 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, while He is bleeding as the Lamb of God for sinners, not far away, in the same city, in the temple, precious little lamb after lamb after lamb is being slaughtered by the priests in the temple, being offered up to appease the wrath of God. Lamb after lamb after lamb, animal lamb, are being slaughtered at the very same time that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is being slaughtered. And every one of these little lambs is really just a type and a picture of the greater Lamb, which is Jesus Himself. So don't forget that all-important truth of the greatest feast day that is occurring coincident with what's going on at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ right outside the gate, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And as Jesus is at the cross, after being mocked, He never defends Himself, He never retaliates. All He does throughout this whole process is He cares about other people. We've seen it already. He cared for the women who were behind Him as He was carrying His cross. He cared for the sinners when He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're... He cared for His mockers. He cared for Judas when He called Him friend when He was betrayed. Jesus is totally selfless. He's a selfless Savior. And here we're going to see that He is a providing Savior. 
So looking at verse 25 to 27, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, we already saw the mockery that just happened prior to that. And so John picks up at the middle of verse 25 after the mockery. But that's a contrast in light of this, despite all the mockery from all the people. But contrast, an amazing thing happened. A good thing happened. A blessed reality took place despite all the mockery. But. And the contrast is, aside from all these mockers, there were standing at the cross people who were not mockers, people who adored Jesus, followed him, loved him. And never deviated from loyalty to him. Who was that? That's verse 25. There were, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, maybe Salome, we don't know. She's not named. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You've got four women who are identified standing there at the very foot of the cross. Three Marys, very popular name. Came from Miriam, who was the sister of Moses. So a very popular Jewish name at the time. And also we know that John the Apostle was standing there with them. So you've got four women who loved and were totally devoted to Jesus Christ to the end, including his mother. And John, the beloved disciple. Now all the other apostles, for the most part, they scattered. Peter tried to follow for a while. We don't know where Peter is right now. We do know he was overwhelmed and went out and wept bitterly. And John the Apostle, he, he hung in there and he stayed with Jesus all the way to the foot of the cross. So Jesus is hanging there on the cross. And again, not thinking about himself, but thinking about others. So they were standing at the foot of the cross, these four women. And verse 26 says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that was John the Apostle. John the Apostle was probably Jesus' best friend during the three and a half years of his public ministry. So he sees Mary, his mother, John the Apostle, called the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby. And Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, John the Apostle, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. And this is the, the great provision that Jesus provided in the midst of his death because he's a, a providing Savior, a gracious, caring, compassionate Savior. Not thinking of himself, but thinking about others and thinking about his people and their needs. And that's what he's doing here. He sees his mother at the foot of the cross knowing, more than likely, Joseph, her husband, was already dead. He's never mentioned beyond the birth stories of Christ. Jesus had other physical brothers who were his half-brothers. Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born. Three, four, five. Some brothers and a sister. They're mentioned in Scripture. Jesus had physical half-brothers. James and Jude are two of them. We know from John chapter 7 that at this time, Jesus' own brothers that He grew up with did not believe in Jesus at this time. They mocked Him in John 7. They probably did not get saved until after Pentecost or at the time of Pentecost. We know from Acts chapter 1. So they were not regenerate. So Jesus and Jesus is concerned about his mother. He's an honorable son. It is his mother. Mary was Jesus's human mother. But we know from Scripture that Jesus has always existed. You know, Jesus existed before he came into the earth. Jesus existed for all eternity. Jesus created the world with the Father and the Spirit. And when Jesus decided to come down into this earth to take on a human body, through a miracle that we cannot comprehend, He chose to come through 
Mary, a normal, sinful young woman who had faith in God. And you had the virgin birth, which was a miracle. And then Jesus was born of Mary. He wasn't created through Mary. He existed before Mary existed. But in the incarnation, He took on a human body as the God-man through Mary. So humanly speaking, Mary is Jesus' mother. And for 33 years, Jesus obeyed the Old Testament, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy and the basic Ten Commandments when it said that children are to obey and honor their parents. And when He moved out of the house and began His ministry on His own, He didn't obey her anymore, but He did honor her. And here He is fulfilling Mosaic law, honoring His mother to make sure that she is taken care of. She is a widow. Right now, she doesn't have believing children. And to guarantee that she's taken care of, Jesus goes to the best friend that He had on earth, John the Apostle. The only Apostle, as far as we know, that is at the foot of the cross still, at His death. Where are the other eleven or ten? And so graciously, Jesus makes this amazing, wonderful provision for His mother and tells Mary, Mary, behold your son. Mary, John, I want you to have a new relationship with Him. John, I want you to take care of my mom. Behold, she's your mother now. Take care of her. Make sure she's provided for. And you know what? That's exactly what happened because verse 27 says, when Jesus said, Behold your mother to John the Apostle, it said, From that hour, literally from that day, from that point on, John understood what Jesus was saying. And so the disciple, John the Apostle, took Mary into his home to take care for her, which is the honorable thing to do. So not only is Jesus providing for sin, spiritual provision on the cross, forgiveness of sin, Jesus is providing physically, materially, one of the most basic needs we have as humans, the nurture and care and provision of someone. You know what? Jesus as Savior also does that for us. It's not just all the spiritual realities. God cares about our physical needs as well. Basic provisions and even more so. This is very important for us to keep in mind. This is a great truth. It applies to us today. Think about your own life. Do you have provisions in your life? Do you have a job? Do you have food? Do you have clothing? Do you have a home? Did you sleep in a comfortable place last night? Do you have transportation? Do you have all of your needs met? If you do, every one of those blessed things is a direct gift from God the Provider and Jesus the Savior. Jesus said in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you, Christian. I will never leave you. I'm only a prayer away. And not only will I provide for all of your spiritual needs, I will also provide for any need you have physically and materially in this earth. Maybe not everything you want, but everything you need is provided for as a Christian by Jesus Christ, the great provider and Savior. Also, maybe when you're reading this text, you saw that Jesus looks down and He calls His mother woman. Wow, that's kind of disrespectful. No, it wasn't at all. The Greek word is very specific. It was a term of respect. He called her this in John chapter 2 when he began his ministry. No, This is significant. Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus call Mary mom or mother. He never addresses her that way. Never. When he left home and began his ministry as the Messiah, he took on a new posture in terms of how he was going to relate to Mary, who was his human mother for those 30 years. Now he was the master He was the Savior, and Mary was just as dependent upon Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins as any other human being at this time. Very important to keep in mind. So she is a woman. Humanly speaking, she was his mother, but very important, she is not the mother of God. My children were having a theological debate and discussion last week 
at our house disrupting uh, dessert. What's the squabble all about? And the squabble was, finally they had to go to Dad, the high priest. Dad, um, <laughs> is, Jesus, is, is Mary the mother of God or not? And I said, wow, that's a loaded question, dude. Um, I'll have to answer it as concisely as possible. No, Scripture never says that Mary is the mother of God. And then just, you know, it spun out of control from there and then we dialogued more. But that was a technical title that she was given early on in the church or in the Middle Ages from wrong theology trying to exalt Mary beyond what Scripture says about her, calling her the mother of God. She's the mother of the human part of Jesus at the Incarnation. She is not the mother of God. She is not deity. She should not be prayed to. She's not the queen of heaven, as some religions tell us and would have us believe. There's nowhere in Scripture where it says that Mary is the queen of heaven or the mother of God. Those were created by humans and then formalized into religions and passed down for centuries. Luke chapter 2, Mary prayed a prayer and she's praying to God my Savior. She was admitting she was a sinner. Mary was born a normal birth. Mary was born with sin. Mary needed to be born again. Mary died like any other sinner. And Mary is dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of her sin and adoption of the family of God. And here's an amazing passage that happened in Luke chapter 11. Just listen to this. Jesus is in the middle of public ministry. He just did a bunch of miracles. He just cast out a bunch of demons. He's teaching publicly. And there are crowds of people throwing around the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the hustle and bustle in the midst of all these crowds and the amazing miracles he just did, it says, and it came about, this is Luke 11, it came about while he said these things. In the middle of his teaching, he was interrupted. I hate it when that happens when I'm teaching. But anyway, and it came about while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice. She screamed out in the middle of his lesson and said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. You know what she was saying? Man, the miracles you've done are so amazing. How much more amazing must be your mother? That's what it says. Blessed is the womb that bore you. Your mother. Blessed. Incredible. Amazing. Awesome woman. And the breasts at which you nursed. And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, that's right. Amen. Yes, she is. He, didn't say, he said just the opposite. This is surprising. Verse 28, Jesus said, on the contrary. Wow. No, my, my, mother, my human mother is not awesome. Only God is awesome according to Scripture. Set the record straight. On the contrary, you have a wrong view of my mother. On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. Wow, those are the people that are blessed. If you're a Christian, that's you. What Jesus was saying is, if you have heard the Word of God, if you have believed it and you obey it, you are just as blessed and on an equal par with Mary herself. And you know what? Mary did believe. And she was blessed as a sinner who received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ as Savior. But I just wanted to point that out. But the point is that Jesus is Savior. He provides for all of our needs, not just spiritually, but also physically, and especially if you are one of His own. He will continue to provide for you. If you've got a need in your life, you've got a crisis in your life, you are a Christian, you cry out to Jesus. You pray to Him. You throw it all on Him. You cast it in His lap. You know what? He will take care of you. He will provide. He will. He's the blessed 
providing Savior. Point number two is Savior Jesus offers propitiation. Huge word. A lot of eyes. It's in the Bible, though. That's why we use this term. You know, words matter. We can't just, oh, that's too complicated today. The people of the 21st century, they can't understand that. That's too archaic. No, it's not. We need to preserve biblical language. We're not going to jettison and get rid of this term just because people say, no, it's too long and cumbersome and too many syllables. We're not going to do it. It's right in the Bible. Propitiation. What does it mean? Well, it means simply satisfaction. To be satisfied. To be appeased. To be assuaged. To satisfy someone. But it's more than that. To satisfy someone who is angry. Ooh, uh uh-oh. Well, who needed to be satisfied? Well, who was angry? Who needed to be satisfied and appeased and assuaged so that their wrath could be absorbed? Well, the answer, according to the Bible, is that God. God was angry. God is angry. God is God's angry? Yeah, He is. Anger is not inherently a sin. God is angry. And God's anger is perfect. And God's anger is holy. And God's anger is always justified. And God's anger demands consequences of the highest order. And Scripture is clear. You know, our, our world today, they can't handle a God who's angry or a God of wrath. But it, it's right out of the Bible. We're not making this up. This is from Genesis to Revelation. God has anger. God has wrath. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. Listen to this. I can go all over the place. Here's what Scripture says about God. This is what God says about Himself. This is His bio- autobiography about Himself. God wrote this and said this about Himself. Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His enemies and He reserves wrath for His adversaries. Wow, God is angry. What is He angry about? He's only angry about one thing and that is sin. God hates sin. That's Psalms chapter 5. God hates sin. That's Habakkuk chapter 1. He can't tolerate it. He can't be in its presence. It must be banished. It must be punished. And there's only one consequence that is deserved of a holy God for sin, and that is death. That is the shedding of blood. That is the only thing that will satisfy God, that will appease Him, is death. The one who sins must die, says the Lord in the book of Ezekiel. Well, I don't want a wrathful, angry God. Oh, you don't? Well, what kind of God do you want? Well, I only want a a loving God. That's what we hear a lot. I only want a loving God. Well, I don't know why anybody would want a God who is not... Well, the reason God is angry and wrathful is because He's holy. In other words, He must punish sin. He must deal with sin. He can't handle sin. He can handle it, but He doesn't want it in His presence. So He's a holy God. And because He's a holy God, He has to be a wrathful God because He has to deal with sin. I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want a God who is only loving and not a holy God. Because if you don't have a holy God, you have a God who tolerates sin and immorality and compromise and perversion. We must have a holy God. So God is holy and God is loving. Yes, God is angry with sin. Well, that sounds kind of scary. Well, it is scary. But He's also a loving God and a gracious God and a patient and forgiving God. And that's why He sent Jesus to die and be punished for sinners. And that's what happened when Jesus was on the cross. When He died on the cross, He willingly, deliberately planned to die on the cross to become the substitute for sinners 
so that as he hung on the cross, he would be punished by God the Father for all the sins of the world. And all the sins of the world were laid on Jesus as he was hanging on the cross for six hours. And for six hours, God from heaven was punishing Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. He became their substitute. That is good news. And as God the Father was punishing Jesus as the Lamb of God on the cross, pouring out his blood, and God was pouring out all the wrath, His infinite wrath against His hatred towards sin, Jesus dying as our substitute. When it was all done, God the Father up in heaven who was holy and angry at sin, He was appeased. He was propitiated. He was satisfied with Jesus' perfect, infinite, holy, substitutionary sacrifice offered in behalf and place of sinners. God the Father was satisfied with Jesus' death. That's Matthew 27. Go ahead and look at it. Matthew 27. This is a parallel account. This incident also happened. It's mentioned by uh, the other Gospels, aside from Mark. This is one of the seven sayings of Jesus Christ from the cross. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Here's what Jesus said. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Sixth the sixth hour was 12 o'clock noon. When the sun was at its zenith, mid-sky when it should have been the brightest, all of a sudden it became dark. And the Scriptures tell us it became dark everywhere. This was a supernatural darkness from God as He did in Exodus with the plagues on Israel and as He's going to do in the future during the tribulation when darkness surrounds the entire earth. This darkness is a sign of the judgment of God's wrath. So all of a sudden, instantaneously at 12 noon, on Passover, midday, it just becomes black. One of the Gospels says that the sun failed. And it was black. It was dark. From 12 noon to 3 o'clock when they took Jesus off the cross. And it was in this context, with this darkness going on, with this sign of heavenly judgment from God Almighty Himself on Jesus Christ as the Lamb, Verse 46 says, at about the ninth hour, towards the end, when he almost was totally dead, at about the ninth hour, after six hours, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He screamed from the top of his lungs to the best of his ability. After a point of exhaustion, he screamed from the cross, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What was Jesus saying? What do you mean by that? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? People have conjectured. Some people say he was just totally under emotional duress and turmoil and just screamed it out spontaneously, not meaning anything like people do when they're in a crisis. My God, that is not true at all. Jesus is perfectly quoting Old Testament Scripture. This was not spontaneous. He didn't make this up. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. We've already looked at this psalm. Look at that psalm in your devotionals and you will see that Psalm 22 is explicit as it goes all throughout that psalm detailing the crucifixion of the Messiah. And Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus died. Psalm 22.16 says, a thousand years before Jesus died, they pierced my hands and my feet. Amazing. And that psalm starts out with this verse. Keep in mind, who was in the audience? For the most part, they were Jews. Well, what did the Jews do? They were absorbed in their religion and in the Scriptures. Every Jew there knew Psalm 22. It was a Messianic psalm. Who else was there? 
the foot of the cross mocking Jesus. The Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the keepers and the scholars of the Old Testament law, they of all people knew Psalm 22. They had it memorized. They wrote it down. They taught on it. They preserved it and codified it in Scripture. They taught it in the synagogues of what the coming Messiah was about and who He was to be. And here Jesus Christ is saying to an entire Jewish audience for the most part, and to his mockers, the Sanhedrin, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was declaring himself to be the Messiah. Because verse 16 said, They pierced my hands and my feet. Because they just mocked him and said, Are you the Son of God? They just asked him that. Get down from the cross, Son of God. Save yourself. And he doesn't save himself. He responds with Scripture. I am the Son of God. And let me remind you of Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God has to abandon and forsake and turn His back on the Messiah who in verse 16 needed to be pierced in the hands and the feet for sinners. It's amazing. This is a proclamation from Jesus. This is also a rebuke from Jesus. And it's a declaration of salvation to the world. That he was willingly dying, being cursed by God the Father as the substitute for sinners so that he can appease a holy God. Jesus offers propitiation. Listen to what 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says. He himself, Jesus, he himself is the propitiation for our sin. Wow. He himself is the appeasement of God's holy wrath for our sin. 1 John 2, 2. 1 John chapter 4 says the same thing. So the New Testament uses the word propitiation. That is exactly what it means. By the way, this is the only time that we know of in Jesus' life where He did not refer to God as Father. My Father. My Father. Father. This is the only time He doesn't refer to God as Father. He, call, he just says, God, My God, My God. Which again is just a graphic picture that God the Father is abandoning Jesus, turning His back on Jesus, is punishing Jesus, is literally torturing, crushing Jesus. Well, that's harsh language. No, that's right out of the Bible. That's Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 10. 750 years before Jesus died, Isaiah predicted the Messiah would be punished by God the Father on the cross. And it says, the Lord God was pleased to crush Him. So Jesus willingly died on behalf of sinners, absorbing the wrath of God so that God, His justice would be fulfilled, His wrath would be appeased, the penalty of death was fulfilled according to the Mosaic Law because Jesus died in your place. That is good news. That is cause for rejoicing and thank you the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a, a line in that new song we sang earlier that said, um, Holy wrath satisfied exactly true. It's right out of Scripture. Holy wrath. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for appeasing the holy wrath of Your Father on behalf of sinners. And that's why if you're a Christian and you're a believer, because Jesus died for all of your sins that you've ever committed and never will commit, your sins are forgiven. So that when you die and go to heaven, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will never see your sins in heaven. Absorbed in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Point number three. What else does Jesus accomplish or provide for as Savior? Number three, as Savior, Jesus accomplished justification. justification. Another big word with a lot of syllables and a whole bunch of eyes. Sorry, but it's in the Bible. 
This is a biblical word. It's a beautiful word. It's one of the most important New Testament words on salvation or soteriology, justification. Scripture uses it very specifically. So must we. Going back to John 19. Pick it up where we left off there. Verse 28 in John 19. Jesus provides uh, or accomplished justification for sinners in His death. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, after He talked to uh, Mary and John, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, He's about to die, in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, He said, I am thirsty. That is, by the way, right out of Psalm 69, verse 21, written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified, explicitly says that He would thirst and that they would give him vinegar and gall, and that's exactly what they did. Every step of the way, Scripture is fulfilled. This is God's plan. Every little incident matters. Attesting the fact that Jesus is Messiah. Nothing happens by chance or coincidence. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop like a sponge and brought it up to his mouth. Verse 30, Wow, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. When Jesus had therefore received the sour wine, He said, Tetelestai! is what He said. It is finished. In Greek, it's one word. Tetelestai. It's a beautiful word. I remember when I was in college, new Christian, I went to a church, Rancho Palos Verdes at the top of the hill, and it was called Tetelestai Fellowship. It is finished. It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Another trans, or another, uh, one of the gospels says he yielded up his spirit. You know, Jesus died like no other human in the history of the world. Number one, he was in charge of his own death. Remember that? John chapter 10. No man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly raise it up again. He's the only one in the history of the world who was in charge of his own death. Nobody ever died like Jesus. He died at the hands of a, a frenzied, murderous, compromised mob of people who knew he wasn't even guilty. And they executed an innocent man. So there were people with blood on their hands in the process of killing him. But at the same time, this was God's plan. God the Father killed him or punished him during his death. And yet he was in charge of it all. No man takes my life from me. And it's amazing the balance here. We see Jesus as the God-man, as deity, and as human flesh because in verse 28 it says, He cried out, I thirst! He was human. He was 100% human. Willingly came down here as the Almighty Eternal Creator of the universe and put Himself in the confines of a human body with all of the human emotions that come with that and human limitations. And We know He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was weak. He bled. He cried. He was depressed. He was man 100%. Jesus the Savior had to be a human 100% in order to be our perfect substitute so that we could identify with Him. He could identify with us. Absolutely essential, 100% human, yet without sin. So there's Jesus, the Son of Man, at the end of verse 28. And then you've got Jesus, the Son of God, at the end of verse 30. He gave up His Spirit. He yielded up His Spirit. He was in charge of His own death, which testifies He is God. He is deity. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, Son of Man, Jesus, Son of God. That is our Savior. And going back to this profound statement, 
when Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, Luke 23 says that he yelled with a loud voice once again. He cried with a loud voice, Tetelestai, it is finished. What do you mean it was finished? He finished what he came for. Why did Jesus come? Why was he born? He was born to die. That's what Luke chapter 1 and 2 says. He was born to die. He came to save sinners. That is why he came. So when Jesus says it is finished, his work as Savior is done. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He finished His mission. What did He finish on the cross by dying on behalf of sinners? What did He accomplish through all this? Well, He fulfilled the Mosaic Law and all of its requirements because for 33 years He lived a perfect life, never sinned, never deviated, never compromised. He was perfect. The only perfect human that ever lived fulfilling God's requirement as judge. What else did He accomplish on the cross for dying for sinners? He, he saved sinners because they were lost through His death. He rescued sinners because they were in danger and in peril. That's what His salvation and death accomplished. He redeemed sinners because they were slaves. Slaves of what? Slaves of Satan. Slaves of the world. Slaves of darkness. What else did He accomplish as Savior on the cross? He adopted them. He adopted sinners into His spiritual family. Why? Because we were born as orphans. Separated from God. What else did He accomplish on the cross? He accomplished forgiveness. Why? Because we were born in sin. Dead in trespasses and sin. And I could just go on and on with the glories of the cross and the glories of His death and all that it accomplished on our behalf. But one more point I want to make about this amazing word, tetelestai. And when you take Greek... I've been studying Greek for over 24 years now. I don't know Greek, but I study Greek. I've taught Greek. I don't know Greek, but I study Greek. And when you study it, you just see so much... In the Greek text, it's not there in your English. It's such a specific language. And this word, tetelestai, it is finished. It's one Greek word, and it's in the perfect tense, which is very significant. There aren't a whole lot of verbs in the New Testament that are in the perfect tense. And there are amazing and great truths that flow from that great reality when Jesus said this. In the perfect tense, he was very specific. First of all, it is a past action. It happened in the past. Salvation was accomplished in the past by Jesus. It is done. There's nothing we can do today or in an ongoing manner to accomplish salvation. It is done. Jesus doesn't need to do any more. It is done. One death is sufficient. He doesn't need to be emoliated or executed or killed one more time. It is done. It's a past action. It's a past completed action. It is comprehensive. It covered all the bases. There's nothing that can be added to it. So it's a past completed action. Totally sufficient when it was done. And not only that, the perfect tense tells us that something is a past completed action with ongoing continuous results. Wow! We are the beneficiaries in an ongoing, regular, day-to-day manner because of a, something that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Past completed action with ongoing continuous results. We could continue to benefit from the death of Jesus Christ. It is continually and forevermore efficacious for us. In other words, Jesus' death that happened 2,000 years ago is still relevant. It is still forgiving sinners in an ongoing manner and continually and forevermore will be. It's amazing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your justification. By the way, this is interesting. The word justification is only used one time in the four Gospels. And it's in Luke when Jesus, when the, there are the, there's the real righteous, self-righteous guy praying in the temple, Pharisee, hard as a rock. And then there was the other guy, 
a distance away, and all he could do with his head down is beat his chest, and he, all he could say, his only prayer, his sinner's prayer was, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. You know what Jesus said? He said, that man went home justified, saved, that very moment, born again, a supernatural transaction that took place before God. He was made righteous. And by the way, this word justification, a very specific term used many times in the rest of the New Testament by Paul and all the apostles. Uh, It is a legal term. It is a forensic term, justification, a legal term. So God is judge. And justification is a declaration that is made. It's not a process. It is a declaration. Very important. Like when you get married and the authority stands up there and says, I now pronounce you man and wife. It is a pronunciation. It is a declaration of legality that has authority that is binding, that continues right there in a completed action and goes on forevermore in its results. Like when two people get married. So it's a legal declaration. And that's what... Jesus, or God does, and Jesus does as judge, the moment you trust in Him as Savior and believe in His gospel and His death on your behalf, God the judge slams the gavel and makes a declaration. Not only does He say you are not guilty like they do in courts of law today, that's what they say. They can't say you're innocent in a court of law today. They say you're not guilty because you could be a pathetic sinner and a criminal in other areas, yet in that one crime you could be declared not guilty for this infraction, or at least we didn't find the evidence. So God says, not guilty. Not only that, He says you are innocent. Not guilty, innocent before God. It's even greater than that. God looks at you in Christ Jesus and says, not guilty, innocent, but you're also righteous in Christ. Not only are you an innocent human being, you have 100% of the perfection of Jesus Christ transferred over into your account. And that becomes your identity as a Christian. Amazing. That is mind-boggling. But that is what justification means. If you are a Christian this morning, God the Father looks down from heaven on you with all your sins and shortcomings and idiosyncrasies. But if you believe in Him, He sees you as perfect as He sees Christ. That is justification. And then finally, number four. On the cross, as Savior, Jesus makes intercession. Intercession. That's a go-between. That's when you're afraid of some authority figure. Whether it's the principal or the coach or your parent. When you think you're going to get in trouble, you did something bad and you need a go-between. You need to go talk to my parents so that uh, I don't get the whatever, you know. We need a mediator, an intercessor to somebody go-between for us. You know what? A holy God and sinful humans. Sinful humans need a go-between. They need a, a mediator. They need an intercessor. They need a high priest to go to the Father on their behalf because we are sinful and we can't go immediately into the presence of God. That's what Scripture teaches. That's why in the Old Testament, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and He told them how to build a tabernacle that was portable that would eventually become the permanent temple, there were very specific directions on how to build and construct that building. And the innermost room was the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was to reside the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments were. That was the Word of God. And inside the Holy of Holies also would be the cherubim or these angel figures wherein God would come down and there would be the presence of God. You had the Word of God and the presence of God literally in that little room called the Holy of Holies. And then they would uh, quarantine off the Holy of Holies from the other outer rooms with this huge, massive, thick curtain carefully constructed, beautiful fabric, blue and purple, and it's detailed in the book of Exodus of how it was made and created. 
and no one was allowed to go through into the Holy of Holies through that huge, massive curtain except a designated high priest, and that high priest was only allowed to do it once a year. There are many times where people went in there and were killed immediately by God for entering into the Holy of Holies where His Word and His presence resided. That veil, it was called the veil, huge, massive curtain hanging down, separating a holy God from sinful people. And the only one allowed to go immediately into the presence of God was a high priest, a designated high priest. And Hebrews tells us that year after year after year, human, sinful, weak, inadequate high priests would go in every single year, first offering a sacrifice for their own sin for thousands of years until finally the greatest high priest, Jesus Christ, came to be the final high priest, to go into the Holy of Holies, not down here on earth, but there's a Holy of Holies in heaven that allows direct access to God. And Jesus Christ, as the high priest, blazed a trail as the mediator and intercessor on behalf of sinners so that sinners can go directly now to a holy God without the need of a human priest anymore. That's this great truth of Matthew 27. I want to close with this. Jesus is the intercessor. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the trailblazer and intercessor on behalf of sinners, paving a way to God, making Him accessible to the weakest sinner. Matthew 27, 51 says this. Another thing that Jesus said, and behold, so after Jesus said, it is finished, and He said, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And it says He yielded up His spirit and He breathed His last. And at that very moment, this happened at verse 51, and behold, and behold, and suddenly, amazingly is what that means, and behold, the veil of the temple. Keeping in mind, what's going on in the temple at this time, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Sacrifice of lambs, hundreds upon hundreds, uh, people crushing in, pilgrims from all over the world. It's the biggest feast day of the year. There's everybody's eyes are focused at the temple in Jerusalem. And at that very moment, at the high point of the day, when the temple was busiest with sacrifice, it says, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two. By who? God the Father. Ripped it in half, not all the way, because it says, It was torn in two from top to bottom. That's impossible, humanly speaking. It probably wasn't even torn at the very bottom, but torn from the top. Top to bottom. And the earth shook. There was an amazing earthquake. It was so severe, it could have been a 9.7 because the rocks were split all over Jerusalem. Massive, huge earthquake. God was saying something. What was He saying? This temporal, human, temple worship is over. You don't need a fabric or a sheet to separate you from a holy God anymore because Jesus Christ has accomplished salvation and provided immediate access to the holy God who can be your Father by a simple prayer to Him. That's what Jesus provided on the cross. That is what His death means. Amazing. Great provision, our propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God, providing justification for those who believe in Him. We are not guilty. We are righteous in Christ. And finally, we have ongoing, continual access to God the Father in heaven through Jesus Christ, His dear Son. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank God for this great truth. Father, we do thank You for Your grace. God, I thank You that you're a, you're a holy God. And I thank You that You tell us You're a holy God. You warn us from Scripture because You care about us. You don't want us to undergo Your wrath and Your judgment. You want to save us. We know that's Your heart. You've revealed it in Scripture and that's why Jesus came. Father, thank You for sending Jesus 
to rescue sinners from their sin. Thank You that He died on the cross willingly to absorb wrath that was intended for us. Thank You that He died so that we can escape hell. Thank You that He died so we can escape Your judgment even in this life. And all the glorious blessings and promises that come with that. A blessed relationship with You. So as Your children, we thank You. And God, if there is anybody who doesn't know You personally yet and hasn't bowed the knee and believed in Your Gospel, keep working on their hearts through Your Holy Spirit so that You might draw them to Yourself so that they will also be able to know these great and glorious truths that You have revealed to us in Your Scripture. We thank You, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.